I invite you to open to the Gospel of John and the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. If you are visiting with us, we're glad you're here and we hope you feel welcomed. You may see three words out in our lobby. Follow, connect, make, just so you're aware. That is a way to capture the Christian life and we concise it down to, you know, or condense it down to those three words. Follow, follow Jesus, crossing the line of saving faith. Connect, the Bible's command that believers are to be involved in a local church. There's no such thing as getting saved and then not going to a church, not being involved in a church. Uh, we are all called, if we know Christ, to be involved in a church where there is preaching, there are sacraments, there are elders, and there is church discipline, and there are sending of missionaries. That is a difference between a church and a Bible study, for example. Connect, and then the command to make, make believers, make disciples, and to teach and baptize them. That's how the process continues on, and so every church is commanded, the Christians are commanded to follow and then to connect and make. So that is, our, that is what we see as our calling and our charter in the Christian life. That's why you'll see those words out there. Gospel of John chapter 1. This is a series that we are walking through and we'll spend a good deal of the calendar year, except for a short time this summer in a separate series. We will spend most of our calendar year walking through Gospels John, the Gospel of John a gospel, like the other gospels, that speak into a very dark, confused world about how to know God and be reconciled. John's gospel boldly declares that Jesus is the only Savior. He is the only Messiah. He is the only Son of God. And He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that there is no way to be forgiven or to know God or gain eternal life apart from Christ as Savior. That is John's declaration over and over again. Last weekend, we began with what scholars call the prologue. That is the first 18 verses. This weekend, we are going to dive in, starting at verse 19, where the Apostle John will introduce us to the ministry of one known as John the Baptist. And that'll take us from verses 19 down to verse 34. John the Baptist, a rather eccentric prophet. I think that's a fair description who came out of the desert announcing that Jesus is the Messiah and preached a strong message of repentance. And yet it was a message of bright hope because it's the only way that hell-bound sinners like us can be redeemed and find eternal life. In verses 19 to 34, our text before us, we learn at least two things about John the Baptist. And we're going to dive in. First, his mission, and then secondly, his message. John's mission, first of all. It was about the fall of A.D. 28 when a very strange man came out of the desert. Some English translations say the wilderness, some say the desert. If you've not been to Israel, that may be a little confusing because typically in America or northern cultures, you think of you know, wilderness, we think of forests and woods and all that, and desert, we think of barren it's the same thing in the New Testament. It's the Judean desert. It's called the wilderness, but it's a barren, stark desert. It's very hot. It, there is a beauty to it, but it's very barren. It looks like the surface of Mars. And that's where Jesus went to be tempted. <clears throat> it's a searing hot desert. That's where John the Baptist came out of. Now, it's interesting that we know from the Gospel of Luke that John the Baptist was actually from the tribe of Levi, 
His father, Zechariah, was a Levite who served as a priest at the temple in Jerusalem. John was a Levite, but not a practicing priest. So he comes from the Levitical line. He comes from a line of priests, uh, much like Jeremiah, the prophet. But he wasn't a priest. He was a prophet. He was a prophet that came dressed in camel's hair, eating grasshoppers and wild honey as his diet, and preaching a message of repentance. And so John tells us about his mission, starting in verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. First thing he tells us is this man was sent from God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, just to be clear, don't get your Johns confused here. There's the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. And then there's this John who's John the Baptist. Sometimes people newer to the Bible get the Johns a little bit mixed up here. This is John the Baptist. And first thing we're told, God sent him. So letting us know he's a true prophet. Verse 7 He's very clear that he is a witness to the light. John, John the Apostle wants us to know, not only did God send him, he sent him for a reason. He became, or he came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. Verse 8 makes it very clear, and John the Apostle wants you to be clear, he was not the light himself. John the Baptist was not the light. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. That's important. And then what did he come doing as part of his mission? And that is in verses 24 and through 28. And that is he came baptizing. So verse 24, now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize If you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Also look at verse 28. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. That's the Jordan River. Where John was baptizing. Most baptism in the New Testament took place in a river. Often the Jordan River. And here John is baptizing people at the Jordan River. This last item, let's talk about it for a minute because... A lot of us come from different baptism traditions. Number one, John's practice here earned him the nickname. Now, remember, Baptist is not his last name. Okay, He's not John the Baptist. He's John the Baptizer. And it's important to remember why he's called that. He's called that because when people were coming and getting saved, becoming followers of Jesus, then he would immediately immerse them in the Jordan River under water. Our English word, baptism, comes from the Greek noun, almost sounds the same, baptisma, and it's translated, and virtually all New Testament scholars, whether they believe in infant baptism or not, will tell you, yeah, that word translated in the first century, and it was a secular word borrowed by the New Testament writers, it just translates submerge, put under, immersion, dip, cover, sink. That was a, those are common synonyms for translating the word baptisma. I've shared before, but let me give you a couple examples from the first century outside the New Testament, how the word was used. For example, a first century version of our, what we call a version of dry cleaner, would be a fuller. And a fuller, one of their jobs was to dye garments. And if they took a garment and put it under in the dye and completely submerged it and got it, you know, changed the color of it, 
it was said to have been baptized. It was, it was immersed. If somebody drowned or was buried after death in a grave or a ship would sink or something like that, it was very common to use that Greek noun because it simply means cover, immerse, submerge. That's, that's the noun. Now, a lot of us come from a tradition, I did, where believers after salvation were not submerged underwater. Instead, the emphasis was on sprinkling an infant. And, uh, and so for, for those coming out of that tradition, like I did when I was growing up, it, it, is, it is a little bit of an uncomfortable leap sometimes to think about baptizing or submerging somebody after salvation. But when you look at the New Testament, here's the scoop. Young people hear this. When you look at the New Testament, two things are very clear when it comes to this Greek noun. Baptism always took place after salvation. Especially you see that in the book of Acts and the preaching of the apostles. Repent and what? Get baptized. It was to identify publicly with Christ. It had nothing to do with being saved, but it was an issue of obedience once you were saved because you were announcing to the world, I'm a follower of Christ and I'm being buried like he was and resurrected. And so that was the picture. So the first thing is always after salvation and it was always underwater because that's what the word means. In fact, if you say baptism by immersion, that's actually redundant. You're saying it's immersion by immersion. <laughs> that's, that's really what you're saying. It's immersion by submersion. Well, that's, that's, that's inherent in the word. So in the New Testament, it's very clear that the imagery is designed to remind us of what happened in, with Christ. In fact, Colossians 2.12, Paul speaks of being buried with Christ in baptism. And so what it means is this. In the New Testament, baptism after salvation is a matter of obedience for every follower of Christ. Submersion underwater. Jesus says, once you've become my disciple, once you're all in, you're to identify with me by going underwater and rising out of the water, the picture and imagery of me being buried and resurrecting from the dead. In other words, Submersion underwater for a new follower or for any follower of Christ isn't just a suggestion and it's not just an option. It's something, and, and, and let me I'll give you one that I've heard a lot. It's not something to pray about. <laughs> I've heard many people say, oh, I need to pray about it. No, you don't. When something is stated as a command in the Bible, you don't need to pray about it. You need to do it. I need to do it. And so being baptized, being submerged underwater to announce to the world I'm a follower of Jesus is the first issue of obedience on every Christian. And not doing it means I'm being disobedient. And that brings consequences. It means the lack of blessing on my life. It's, it's no different, friends, than any other issue of obedience. I mean, take tithing, honoring the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, sexual purity, being a truth teller, you know, fill in the blank. These things don't save us. But they are issues of obedience, and they have great implications whether we are obeying Christ or not if we claim to be his follower. Also important to note that John himself, John the Baptist, began his ministry making it very clear, keeping in his mind he was not the Messiah. So, for example, go back to verse 19. And I think this is valuable insight into the kind of person God chooses to use for kingdom stuff. I think the key word here is humility. Humility, not a, a focus on me, but a focus on him. And John is a great example of this. So you see in verse 19 down through verse 23. Now this was John's testimony 
John the Baptist's testimony, when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not Messiah. They asked him, well, who are you then? Are you Elijah? That comes from the book of Malachi, where we were told that a Elijah or Elijah figure would come before the Messiah. And he's like, no. Are you the prophet? No. Finally, they said, well, who are you? They knew he was in the priestly line. They knew he was a Levite, but he wasn't functioning in the priestly line. He's wearing camel hair and eating bugs and preaching. And they're like, who are you? What do you say about yourself? Good question. And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness or in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. If you drop down a little bit further to chapter 3, verses 25 to 28, where again the narrative picks up with John the Baptist's story, we get further insight to John's humility. Sometimes people mistake a strong personality like John for somebody who's not humble, and that's not the issue. Humility, as C.S. Lewis points out so well in mere Christianity, is not an issue of personality or temperament or... It has to do with deflecting attention. It has to do with lack of fixation on one's self. And that certainly comes out here with John. So verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples. I'm in chapter 3, verse 25. And a certain Jew, over the matter of ceremonial washing, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, meaning Jesus, one you testified about, look! He's baptizing, and he's getting everybody to go to him. Okay, so his disciples had a little bit of uh, turf uh, jealousy here. And to this John replied, a person can only receive what's given from heaven. Very important. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, and I'm sent ahead of him. Drop down to verse 30. I think this is the key verse. So kids, young people, adults, verse 30. This is, if you want to be used of God, if you, in your heart cries out, oh God, I want to be one who's sold out to you. There is no greater verse than verse 30, where John the Baptist says of Jesus, he must become greater and I must become less. Whatever your personality or temperament, that is the cry of humility is that he must become greater, I must become less. And that is exactly, that's the kind of person God uses. The one who is surrendered to Jesus and is committed to holiness and humility. That brings us to John's message, and it was quite a message. John, the, his message centered on Jesus. So I'm going to go back to chapter 1. We'll pick it up at verse 29. John's message is very much in the prophetic line. If you are familiar, we did the series on the minor prophets in the fall. If you're familiar with the preaching of Amos or Jeremiah or Isaiah or Zechariah, any of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist's message will sound pretty consistent with that. His message centered on Jesus as the Messiah, picking up in chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look... The Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Again, his humility. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. New Testament speaks of two baptisms, water baptism, Holy Spirit baptism. That's when someone is saved and sealed in the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify, this is the chosen one. If you also look at verses 35 and verse 36, especially, he uses the phrase again. Verse 36, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now, let me raise a question. It may seem like an obvious question to you, but let me ask you. What does John mean, John the Baptist, when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God? There are a couple options here. For example, in the book of Exodus, the 10th plague that was sent against the Egyptians, the death of the firstborn, the Hebrews were told, the Jews were told, that if they put lamb's blood on their door threshold, the angel of death would pass over that house and that lamb's blood would cover them in the sense that they wouldn't be judged. That speaks to substitution, that the lamb's blood would be substituted for their life. It doesn't so much speak to what theologians call the word expiation, to the removal of sin. That was more a picture of substitution. So we're not, so we're not sure if that's exactly what John meant. By the way, this phrase, Lamb of God, is not used much in the New Testament of Jesus. It might surprise you. In fact, it's not used anywhere in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Nowhere in Matthew, Mark, or Luke is Jesus called Lamb of God. And only twice here in chapter 1 is he called that in John's Gospel. The only other book where this phrase or the, or the, or the word lamb is used of Jesus is where? Revelation. That's it. And John wrote the book of Revelation. Same author. Now lambs, another thing that may surprise you, were not used much in the Old Testament for animal sacrifice. The most common animals commanded to be used were bulls and goats. Sometimes sheep, full grown, but not usually a lamb. Those are used for Passover, but not usually for sacrifice. Usually bull. In fact, scapegoat were the Sins were placed through prayer on a goat's head and he was sent out, as, as again, as a goat. So the, again, the only other place where Jesus is actually called lamb, but not lamb of God, but just lamb, is in the book of Revelation where it occurs a number of times. And usually, here's what's interesting. The phrase in Revelation usually speaks of the lamb's victory as a warrior lamb who came to crush and defeat Satan's sin and death. Kind of a very different picture, not a victim. So because of this, so I was doing some digging this week and doing some research. Scholars, New Testament scholars like D.A. Carson, one of the best, he says that, he suggests that when John the Baptist calls Jesus Lamb of God, he may have been referring to, or he may have been thinking about the warrior lamb in Revelation, because he's also the one who wrote Revelation. And that were the only other place it occurs. In fact, D.A. Carson notes, if you look at verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, D.A. Carson points out that that verb 
really refers more to taking sin out or confronting it more than atoning for it. Nonetheless, Carson and most New Testament scholars admit that the expression Lamb of God, which is, again, very unique to John's gospel, seems to be a general reference to sacrifice and atonement. And so the question would be, well, where does the imagery come from, if not from Exodus, if, if, if lambs were not used for sacrifice? And the imagery seems to be probably drawn from Isaiah 53, where there is a reference to a lamb taking away guilt. So Isaiah 53, you have the phrase, like a lamb, he, the future Messiah, was led to the slaughter. So you have an imagery of a lamb being led to its death. And then in verse 10, and the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. There you have expiation, the removal of sin associated with the death of a lamb. Death of a lamb. So I think, the, and, and it's interesting that the Hebrew word, this is, I think you'll find this interesting. We've covered this before. The Hebrew word in Isaiah 53.10 for guilt offering, translate guilt offering in English, is the Hebrew word asham, and it's used a number of times, like three or four times in Leviticus chapter 5 to describe what? To describe an animal sacrifice, an animal without defect, sacrifice without defect. That would seem like the imagery John is picking up. So, bottom line, when, G, when John the Baptist points to Jesus as the Lamb of God, there may be overtones of him as the victorious warrior lamb, indeed, as Carson indicates. But it also seems to be a very strong reminder this is the Savior, and we need a Savior. Now, I don't know what tradition you grew up in or if you went up to a church, but you need to know, beloved, that the Bible is very clear about our sin, painfully clear. Jeremiah 17 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. King James translates it desperately wicked. Not a very flattering verse. Or Isaiah 59, 2, your sins have separated you from God. And what that means, and young, kids and young people, please, especially what you hear this, here's what that means. It means that our greatest need in life is to find forgiveness for our sin. That is your greatest, it's my greatest need, that is your greatest need. To be reconciled to God and to avoid the coming judgment. That is what the Bible says our greatest need is. Over any other need. And the gospel is that God sent his son to be that atoning sacrifice for the expiation of sin to be removed. Also for the propitiation, different word, that means to appease God's wrath. Satisfy his justice, but to be that sacrifice to pay for the sins of his people. But here's something that a lot of people miss. Sit in churches and go hear this. And that is, we have to respond to the good news. We have to do something. Not good works, but there is a response called for if we want to be forgiven. What is that response? And that is, we have to repent and believe. And that's where John gets to that message. Now, I want to go over Luke chapter 3 for just a moment. And I pick Luke 3 because Luke's gospel gives us probably the most extended biographical information on John the Baptist. And certainly we get a, a, a bigger transcript of his preaching, so to speak, in the Gospel of Luke. And I want to turn to it for a minute because while we're talking about his message, Luke really gives us a fuller version of what his preaching was like. So Luke chapter 3, you can't avoid Luke 3 if you want to know John's message. You've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. And it adds 
significantly to what the Gospel of John tells us. Luke chapter 3, where we get a larger dose of John's preaching. It says he came boldly to declare what needed to be done. In John 3, he's going to tell sinners who are in danger of the wrath of God what to do to be right with God. So let me, let me just add, if you're here this morning and this whole concept of how to be born again and how to be saved and how to be forgiven and find eternal life has been kind of fuzzy for you, if your question is, well, tell me, preacher, how do I get right with God? That's exactly what John the Baptist is preaching in Luke chapter 3. So let's, let's, let's read it. And by the way, I want you to just to notice almost a little humorously how John begins his sermon in verse 7. Now, I've been preaching a long time and listened to a lot of sermons. A lot of you listen to a lot of sermons. Usually sermons, especially in American culture and even other Western, Westernized nations, often begins with something interesting or a quote or a poem or a joke or a funny story or, or something. Not uncommon. I want you to notice, just interesting, how John begins not with a joke, not with a story. Verse 7, John said to the crowds, so here's John preaching, he's got crowds indicating lots of people out there, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now, I confess, I've, I've never opened a sermon that way. I'm probably too Americanized. I try to, you know, a little easier on-ramp, so to speak, than just to come up, please open your Bibles, you brood of vipers. But this is the word of God. It is a fair description of us. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. And then he, go, he goes more. The axe is already at the root of the trees, picturing them as trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. We're hardly a, a paragraph into his sermon and he's already called them vipers and threatened them with the fire of hell. Now notice verse 10. What should we do then? I want to submit, that is, an, that is the question every human being should ask. We're going to come back to that in just a second. The crowd asks, what do we do? John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. That was amazing because tax collectors were often seen as the bad guys. It's a pejorative term in the New Testament. Even tax collectors were coming to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then soldiers came, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money. Don't, excuse, don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. There's good advice for all of us. The point is, you don't do these things to get saved. These are the evidence of what he said, repent. Repent means a change of behavior. Now go back to verse 10. This is a critical question. Adults, kids, young people, that is the question. Now I've done a lot of preaching over the years. And one of the things that 
I realize is that most of the questions that I get after I preach don't have anything to do with my sermon. That's just not uncommon. People come by and talk about everything else but the message. And that's fine. Notice here, John starts with this brood of viper and then threatens them with coming judgment. Here's what I find, and I've been thinking a lot, if anything grabbed my attention this week, I was thinking on this. What I find so amazing at this point is this, is this question after he kind of hits him with a sledgehammer, what, what should we do? Here's what I find amazing is how many people in John's day considered it a matter of urgency to flee the wrath of God? That is not a common experience in American preaching today, or I would just say preaching any other place I've ever heard it. We live in a day where very few seem to fear anything to do with the wrath of God. Most of the people we are around in our neighborhood or the office or school or the gym or whatever, they, they don't appear to be people overly concerned with fleeing the wrath of God. Do they to you? I mean, they don't to me. And the reality, friends, is if we take this narrative seriously here, and it's true, here's the reality. Beloved, there are some people here today who should be fleeing the wrath of God with everything in their might because you're not saved. The good news is you're here and breathing. Hear the warning from God's word. Anytime a preacher's in front of an audience, not everybody is saved. And so today may be the day of salvation if you don't know Christ for sure. Those who are not saved, those who are not born again, not true followers, hear the word of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto us once to die, and after this comes judgment. There's a day of judgment coming. Or Hebrews 10, 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One of the things so powerful, some of you have seen it before, is when those in a church who everyone thought were saved finally get saved, it just kind of sends an electric jolt through the church. It's like, wow, look what happened. It's, it, it, it's an amazing thing in the life of a church. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers and writers, he was at Westminster Chapel in London for 25 years. In 1968... At kind of the height of his fame over there, well, beyond the height of his fame, he was invited to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia to give a series of lectures on preaching. Those became a book called Preaching and Preachers. Great book. Read it a couple times. I've listened to it. You can actually still listen to the audio of it, of the lectures to those seminary students back in 1968. But at one point, Dr. Jones talks about this very phenomenon in his own congregation. And if you are familiar with his preaching, if you have not listened to his preaching, I would highly encourage you. There's MLJ website. has all of his sermons categorized. It's a wonderful resource for the Christian. We have some friends, and we were talking them recently, and the wife had said to us, she said, I listen to a Lloyd-Jones sermon every morning. He has a, his native tongue was Welch. He also preached in English in London, but he has a wonderful way of rolling his R's that you would just laugh at me if I did it. But, uh, but Lloyd-Jones, he, he talked about this in these lectures that there's this phenomena at times when people that everyone thought were saved really get saved. And this is what he said, quote, and this is after he'd been a pastor for decades. One of the most exhilarating experiences in the life of a church 
And remember, he's talking to future pastors, seminary students. One of the most exhilarating experiences in life of a church is when, when people whom everyone thought were Christians are suddenly converted and truly become Christians. Notice this last sentence. Nothing has a more powerful effect on the life of a church than when that happens to a number of people. Close quote. And some of you have seen that before. I, Becky and I have seen that before. It is truly electrifying. And John was aiming at that very thing. All right, I want to come to our summons and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. Three summons I want to leave with you this morning coming out of our text. And I'm going to phrase all of them with the two words, start with the two words, make sure. Number one, obviously our text this morning, both from John and Luke, would say this, make sure you are forgiven and reconciled to God and safe from the coming wrath. Make sure you have been born again and surrendered to Christ as Lord. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The gospel is whoever repents and believes in the Lord Jesus will be forgiven and sheltered and protected on Judgment Day. They will be passed over. And, let me add, Make sure you're evangelizing your children. I'm going to keep emphasizing that this year. It's amazing how many people just take their kids to church and then go home and don't talk about it. Make sure you are explaining the gospel to your kids and going over scripture with them and using a catechism with them and teaching them theology and talking worldview stuff and pressing them to make sure that they have repented and trusted Christ as Savior and what it means then to disciple them. That's the first make sure. Make sure you're reconciled to God, beloved. Secondly, make sure you've been baptized after salvation. Immersed under water. In Matthew 28, Jesus sent out his disciples, said, go preaching to all the nations, make disciples, teaching them, and baptizing them, immersing them. It is a command of Jesus to any follower. F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, said that the Bible knows, the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian. It's an oxymoron. Someone who's been submerged and immersed after conversion. In the New Testament, they usually did it the same day, by the way. So again, it's not something you have to go pray about. <laughs> it's something you need to do as an issue of obedience. We have a couple of baptism services coming this year and great opportunity to obey Christ if you have not been and share your story, how you came to know the Savior. Lastly, third summons, make sure you're confirming your salvation, if you know Christ, by obedience. Now, the Bible is very clear. We're not saved by good works. The Bible announces that over and over again. However, the Bible is very clear that once we're saved, good works cannot but follow. And the, and the question for anyone who says, yeah, I'm a true follower, I'm all in, is are you obeying Jesus? Am I obeying Jesus? Are you obeying Christ? Not, we're not talking perfection, but we are talking there's a hunger to obey. There are ongoing attempts. There's a growth in obedience patterns in our life. Jesus says in John 14, 23, a verse you're going to hear a lot this year, if anyone loves me, he said, they'll obey my teaching. And that means if I claim to know Christ, if you claim to know Christ, young person, if you claim to know Christ, but are walking in disobedience and you're not repenting, 
then it calls into question eventually if you know Christ. Whether the issue is sexual sin or bitterness, which sidelines so many who profess Christ, or gluttony or addiction to substances, legal or illegal, or to alcohol, or to stealing, or lying, or deception, or lust, or whatever it is. If those things are defining me, and I am not walking out of them, then the question starts emerging over time, do I really know the Savior? Which is why the Apostle Paul says words very fitting for communion this morning. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to make sure you're in the faith. This is not a call to become neurotic navel gazers. It is a call to do something very healthy on occasion. What? To examine ourselves. And just to double check our spirit, look at our life, am I truly saved? Because the Bible's clear, just because you go to church and just because you preach or are on church staff or sing in a choir or serve, or do, doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Those that go to heaven want Christ and are captivated by his beauty and have an eagerness to follow in obedience. And there's joy that marks their life. Before we do go to communion, something I want to highlight, you're going to hear a little more this coming year. The elders uh, recently... In fact, Jake Seiler, one of our newer elders, came up with the idea, which I thought was a great idea, which was how do we encourage our people to read their Bibles regularly? And so can you just drop that for just a second on the screen there? Thank you. And so the question is, uh, how do we do that? And one of the ways we came up with, that Jake encouraged us with, how, let, let's encourage our people to at least read their Bible five days a week, a chapter a day. Now, some of you say, well, that's all. Others are going to say, holy cow, you mean that much? Get it, okay. If you're already in a Bible reading program and you're reading more than that, keep doing that. But our goal is this. We know lots of people don't, and so if we can get at least a big chunk of our flock reading their Bible a chapter a day for five days a week, we, we think that's a huge win. And so this bookmark that Kelly Demakis, our communications director, helped us design, she does a great job, has a quote from R.C. Sproul on the front, and then on the back has this little reminder, one chapter a day, five days a week, and, and then ask, ask the question each time when you read a chapter, what is it God's called me to do here? Or what, what promises are to believe here? Or what, is there, what am I being asked to respond to in this chapter? And we also at the bottom, on the, on the back side, we're encouraging you at least to read through the Gospel of John three times. There's only the 21 chapters through the whole year. So as you're reading a chapter a day here and there, put John into the repertoire at least three times to read through the whole gospel of John three times this coming year. And then if you're newer to the Bible and you're like, I don't know where to start, we suggest five different books perhaps to start in. Genesis, Proverbs, Romans, Hebrews, or James. The goal, again, is to get our flock and just to up the, you know, kind of an uptick on Bible reading and prayer. And we think that that's a really good thing. In February, Jake himself will actually be up here and explain a little more and uh, highlight this again.